Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are coming to the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring, the momentous series of events that started in hope with the desperate act of a Tunisian vegetable seller. With the return of another pharaoh in Egypt, the impunity with which he has meted out retribution upon those that were opposed to the regime, and the killing fields of Syria, whose soil today stands soaked with the blood of martyrs, makes even the most optimistic person surmise that the Arab Spring has turned into what can only be called a cold winter. Over the coming weeks and months, the thinking Muslim takes a look at the tumultuous decade from multiple perspectives. What went wrong? How did an event that reverberated across Muslim capitals with echo chants so horribly go wrong? And what lessons can we learn from the mistakes made? From my side, I once was full of hope for change, naively believing that the autocracies that litter the Muslim world would fall one by one, their fragility reinforced by nothing but fear. Certainly, these regimes deserve to fall, yet those that had for decades claimed to have a blueprint for change were found wanting. If Islam was to have a central role in this change, the saddening realisation was that Islamic groups and parties were severely ill-prepared at best and compromised at worst. The mess that is now Syria laid bare the problems associated with violent uprisings and the futility of asymmetric conflict, with some surmising that all hope is lost. 
We take a deep look at the Arab Spring and ask the following questions over and over again. Why did it end up like this? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Alhamdulillah, the Thinking Muslim has been going for over a year now and we've received some amazing feedback from our listeners. We really would appreciate your views. Please do leave your review on Apple Podcasts and other apps and send us an email. Our address can be found in the description of this program. These past few months, we have been heartened by the response to our free Thinking Muslim course looking at Islam and liberalism. We are soon going to expand these sessions to a university-wide course in association with Islamic societies and MSAs from around the world. If you are involved with your student society, please get in touch to see how you can co-host this course this November. Now, our guest this week is Dr. Usman Bakash from Lebanon. I've known Brother Usman for many years and I've benefited from his analysis on events. Usman was very active on Arab media channels at the height of the Arab Spring and remains an insightful commentator on events. This week, we take a deep look at Egypt and Syria and picking the complex circumstances that led to both countries deepening their respective authoritarian rules. And I asked Brother Usman, what went wrong in Syria and Egypt? Dr. Uthman Bakash, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Zakallah khair. It's a pleasure being with you. Dr. Uthman, 10 years ago we saw the beginnings of what became known as the Arab Spring uh, with the uh, tumultuous events, I suppose, that started in Tunisia. Can you please just take us back 10 years and uh, describe your feelings when uh, these events unfolded? Yes, well, um, even uh, way before the so-called Arab Spring, uh, I may give a snapshot into um, kind of the general main street here in the Middle East. Uh, meaning, you know, I grew up I grew up in the eye of the storm, if you will, uh, going, going all the way back to the 1967 war where Israel had attacked Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and the whole ensuing the issue of the Palestine issue, and the, the, always the frustration and the agonies between the aspiration of Muslims seeking an Islamic way of life and uh, versus the imposed secular order imposed by the colonial powers and supposedly uh, taken over by the local strongmen in the Arab world for that matter. So in, within this context really, when the first event uh, ignited in Tunisia back in December 2010, uh, certainly um, I, um, among, among majority of the people here really, we very much had had back then. We had uh, very high hopes uh, that uh, we we were hoping that this, uh, as you know, certain, especially when we kind of when the snowball uh, started rolling and growing, we had aspiration uh, that finally we there is a potential, a possibility for seeing some real change in our day to day, you know, life and. Uh, uh, so socio-economic and political situation in the, in the Middle East. So yes, I would say back then really there was a great aspiration and hopes, but yet then again, on the other hand, uh, being seasoned and accustomed to the various uh, trickery of the 
politics and the power struggle, international and intervention. Also, at the same time, one kind of, at the same time, we had this uh, inner, inner fear that, uh, in a way, this is too good to be true, if you will. Now, you said we, we had an inner fear, um, uh, and, and that, you know, in a sense, became a, a reality, and, and the Arab Spring quickly descended into, into something which uh, we could argue is, is, could now be described as an Arab winter. Um, Egypt quickly followed the Tunisian uprising and the speed by which Mubarak fell uh, probably amazed you and I and amazed everyone. On reflection, were we duped by how fast the system was ready to give up on its leadership and on its president? Well, not... Uh, yes, 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 you are right. You are right in saying we were surprised by the quick fall of Mubarak. You know, Mubarak was a long time ally of the U.S. and certainly he wouldn't fall uh, with, with the U.S. not knowing or allowing it. So uh, yes, he fell rather quickly and for that matter even similarly in Tunisia. But at the same time actually and uh, knowing, knowing the anarchy in the streets, you know, all, when you go back, when you go back to January in Egypt, seeing these hundreds of thousands or, or millions of Egyptians pouring to the streets and screaming and shouting a shab, you read Scott and Nizam, that people want to bring down the regime. That, that was nice slogan. It was nice, easy, it kind of uh, it, uh, synchronized with the aspiration and feelings of the common, you know, day-to-day common Muslim everywhere in the Middle East area. But also at the same time, uh, when when you ha- when you have this kind of um, political acuteness, you would know that ultimately, who the one who called the final shot are those who really uh, hold on to the main um, joints of the power, uh, the so-called deep state, if you will. So really, at no time, and even I, I have said I have said this repeatedly. Um, I don't know dozens of times over the years, and when addressing the issues in Tunisia, in Libya, in, uh, in Egypt. I have said this dozens of times, and I always appeal to the protesters and the, their leaders to uh, ensure that indeed the revolution is complete. In other words, not to accept a so-called compromise, not to accept uh, uh, half solution, because I knew anything called half solution is a suicide. So. Uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't so naive, more, more so knowing. I, I knew fully well that to bring down the regime, it means you are clashing against the, the United States, and United States will not will not sit by idle, watching, you know, Egypt. Egypt is a major, it's a major bastion of American influence. It's a major, major base for American influence in the region. The American would not sit by idle, you know, and just let it go away from their hands. This is, this is just, you know, it's a, it's a joke. You know, it's a, uh, it's way, it's totally out of, out of, uh, you know, thinking. So always we uh, had this fear that uh, the deep state, if you will, uh, would emerge at the at the end of the day in in control. Okay, and uh, yeah, well, you know, we could we. We have seen we have seen a similar episode like in Pakistan 
uh, or in Philippines, where America would, okay, if and when X, uh, Marcos in Philippines or uh, in Pakistan, so America would have no problem in replacing this, uh, you know, this uh, jockeys, uh, so-called rulers. So, um, and actually this question again, it, it, it hit on the issue of the lack of, of, of the lack of the leadership in uh, among this uh, popular uprising, there was no coherent central leadership with a vision, with acuteness, with knowing what to do and how to do it, etc. As we will we will delve into the details of this uh, process more, I think, during the discussion. Yeah, but uh, you say the lack of leadership, but from where I'm sitting, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was regarded, and, and maybe to an extent, maybe lesser extent, but still is, regarded as the most organized movement, especially in, in, in Egypt, and um, its roots are spread across the population, and it, it was able to bring out large numbers of protesters at the critical stages of, of uh, the revolution. Um, and so you know, it, it sometimes is quite hard to believe that uh, that level of organization, especially an organization that's um, endured uh, previous regimes of oppression, that uh, they once uh, the uh, decision was made to uh, to take power, that uh, they were disorganized and, and lacked leadership. Well, here, here you are. You are really you are hitting a raw nerve. You are hitting the crux of the dilemma, namely the fact that yes, on the one hand, as you described, on the one hand, Muslim Brotherhood is truly uh, a, a cross, a grassroots movement. It's very large, very well organized internally, but still, however, this doesn't. Uh, mean necessarily that they had a clear political vision. They had none of it. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, they raised the slogan, uh, Islam is the solution, that this was their slogan for decades. And this is, and indeed, yes, when the time came for election, they, they, they got a big, big share of the, of the popular vote because most of people, they want Islam. Uh, and the, like in the uh, parliamentary par, par, parliament election in, held in Egypt, uh, about 75% or even close to 80% of the votes went for both Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafi movement. But still, both of these uh, Islamic parties or movement, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafi, neither of them had any clear vision, uh, political vision or understanding. And uh, just for the benefit of those kind of uh, who may have forgotten the details of what happened early on in the revolution, even before uh, the fall down of Mubarak, the Muslim Brotherhood, they sent a delegation who met with Omar Suleiman, the deputy of Mubarak, and all the, the, the ceiling of their, uh, um, of their demand back then, they basically, they were, make, they were willing and ready to make a deal, say, okay, look, we can call this off, all of this uh, revolution, or not, not revolution, I mean, uprising back then, uh, in exchange that you accept us, you give us a legal admission, uh, recognition. Because in the election held in Egypt in the summer 2010, 
uh, Muslim Brotherhood, they got zero. They got zero seat in the election. Of course, that election always had been rigged under Mubarak. So Muslim Brotherhood always, you know, from the day, if going back to the days of Jamal Abdel Nasser, they always had this dilemma uh, and concern of being legitimate, uh, of having, uh, of being, to be able to operate publicly and, and with, with the full protection of the law. So before the fall of Mubarak, they, came, they sought this kind of deal with, with Mubarak, but then the events in the street went faster than them. Later on, Mubarak was gone, was gone, then became a question, okay, now the next phase, the next page in the Egyptian revolution. And then again, they struck a deal with the ruling junta, with the military junta in Egypt. They struck a deal with them, uh, accept leading to the eventual election of Mohammed Mursi as president. Um, so, uh, you may you may have forgotten. Let me remind you. You may have forgotten that at one early on, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt they openly, uh, publicly they declared that we do not seek the position of the presidency of the republic. No, we, we, we don't want it. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of their um, key uh, leaders, uh, Dr. Abdelmunim Abdel Futuh, he was with them and he was he was very prominent activist among the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, he, he said, no, we have to go for it. We have to uh, run for it and people are with us. And he, they said, no, no. He, Dr. Abdel, Abdel, Abdel Futuh, he ran, uh, he announced his candidacy for the presidency and they dismissed him. The Muslim Brotherhood, they dismissed him. They kicked him out. And later on, when even, see, take another, uh, the Shura Council, the Shura Council of Muslim Brotherhood, uh, they had this uh, fateful meeting debating whether to participate in the election, in the presidential election, and it was only one vote. One vote made the difference and said, yes, we'll go for it. And I remember very well that the ex, the ex um, Murshid, the Murshid Am, you know, the, um, the leader of Muslim Brotherhood, the ex previous one, uh, Dr. Mahdi uh, Akif, he said after all, he said, look, this, 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 this decision will cost us dearly. This is wrong. This is very wrong. It will, it will cost us dearly, but nevertheless, the decision was made. So you can see all along this kind of zigzag, you know, one step forward, one step backward. And this, this um, highlight really the lack of uh, political awareness, political vision, they were not. They were not ready. And see, this will take us to another level of, of really discussion here. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, yes, they are they are popular grassroots movement, but when you kind of uh, put them on the on the cross light spotlight, you'll see that they have failed to uh, produce a, 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 a mature political vision. Uh, you know, dealing with the government and the states and the various ways of uh, addressing and governing actually this this is totally lacking in their in their okay but um, let's take their perspective the muslim brotherhood uh, has been the subject of state repression uh, since their formation in the 1920s uh, they uh, see this uprising to which they contribute and they contribute lives and and men to uh, to the uprising and uh, now they have an opportunity to govern uh, in the country, and as you quite rightly said, the Muslim Brotherhood was the uh, the most organised movement in Egypt. 
yes, of course, they've got this reservation and, and you know, you've explained why that reservation existed. But then Morsi, uh, President Morsi, uh, he became president as a result of the uh, presidential election. Uh, why is it that uh, at that point, the Muslim Brotherhood could not manage to hold on to power? I mean, you said earlier on that uh, the the street was very much in favour of Islam. Well, here we've got Islam. We've got the Morsi government and we've got for the first time in Egypt, in modern Egypt, we've got a government which reflects the sentiments, as you as you said, the sentiments of the people. Yet um, the people ultimately rejected the Morsi government barely a year after his, uh, his presidency. So what went wrong for Morsi? Um, you cannot you cannot say that the people rejected Morsi. Uh, it, on the one hand, on the one hand, really, there was big uh, failure of Muslim Brotherhood. Now, I mentioned to you, I mentioned to you before the Doctor Abdul Munam al Fatuh. Doctor Abdul Munam al Fatuh, he was a leading leader among within Muslim Brotherhood. Yet when he when he they dismissed him, fine. Then Morsi became president. Good. They still, Muslim Brotherhood, see, once they got to power, they dealt with the government, with the state. They dealt with the state like being, uh, you know, a farm for them. So really, they, they succeeded in uh, winning the animosity of other, other people. In, like uh, Abdul Munayim al-Fatuh, he was one of them. And yet they refused. Morsi refused to sit down with him. Muslim Brotherhood refused to sit down with him. They refused to say, hi, how are you? Come, let's work together. So, and by the same logic, they also managed to create this wedge between them and the Salafi. I mean, you know, when you go kind of, if you go back to that uh, uh, scene when uh, General Sisi, when he, he announced his coup d'etat on July 3rd, uh, and next to him, of course, on the one, he had the Sheikh al-Azhar, he had the Pope of the Christian, but he had next to him sitting the leader of the Salafi party. I mean, you know, this is this is this is scandal by by by, you know, all means. So, but also, of course, the Salafi are to be blamed for their failure and their treasury. This is, this is uh, no doubt. But at the same time, the Muslim Brotherhood they have failed to win them over. Or like for that matter, Sheikh Sheikh Hazim Abu Ismail. Sheikh Hazim Abu Ismail, he was an indep- independent, and he has he had uh, a good a good follower really. And he was always, a matter of fact, he, he had a clear sense of the danger. He knew all along that the army is, uh, is there working to sabotage this uh, new experiment, if you will. The army is working to uh, undermine the, uh, all of this uh, new election, etc., etc. And he, he publicly, openly, a number of times, he cautioned and warned against this. And they failed to listen to him. So it, it's not only Muhammad Mursi as such, it's, it's really the failure of the Muslim Brotherhood as a movement. They kind of, uh, and this, this is, that take us to the issue of, you cannot have a half revolution. You cannot have a half revolution. Uh, they, they had the fantasy of, you know, let's work, let's be smart. Let's, let's be smart. Let's give assurance to the American and to the military that, look, you know, we mean no trouble. We are nice kids. We will play nice by the rules of the game that you, you put. 
uh, we will respect uh, Camp David. Uh, Israel uh, is our neighbor, da 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 da. So we, we, we will not rock the boat. We will play by the rules. We'll be a good player. So they were naive in this in this mentality. And did this naivety extend to the remnants of the old regime, uh, the so-called deep state, uh, as Morsi took power? Uh, you know, you cannot you cannot have a half revolution. Uh, everybody knew. I mean, this is ABC. Uh, the the ex regime, the the previous regime of Mubarak. When you say. Uh, people want to bring down the regime. The regime is not just the head of Mubarak or Sadat. You know, if you go back to 1980, Anwar Sadat was killed. So what? What was changed? Uh, nothing changed. So it's not a matter of removing Sadat or Mubarak or Shah Iran. You have to remove the whole the whole structure. You have a you have a, a whole structure maintaining having the grip over power over the country. You have to remove them. Say similar to what. Uh, so that's what happened in Iran under the Khomeini revolution, or that's what happened in, in the Bolshevik in, in Russia. So you cannot have a half revolution. You remove only uh, Mubarak and then you bring in Sisi. Sisi, he was appointed as defense minister. He was the director of army intelligence under Mubarak. I know, you know, this is, this is so naive, so short-sighted that uh, yes they walked they walked into the trap uh, with their uh, you know with their hands and feet uh, but then was the was the original position of uh, the muslim brotherhood the correct position to not participate in the elections until uh, you could guarantee the removal of the deep state and the removal of those institutions or of those the heads of those institutions that ultimately brought them down Election or no election, this is this details. Uh, to begin with, I, I have said, and I repeat, to begin with, Muslim Brotherhood, they've never had the mentality of, of government, uh, of how to govern a, a country or a state. You know, uh, they, they never had this, uh, this mentality. They were not ready for it. Uh, and this, this is where the origin of everything uh, goes. Uh, what, what, what they should have done, they should have uh, and this that should, that should have eliminated all of this uh, Mubarak uh, strongmen in the army. Every officer in the army who had loyalty to Mubarak or to America should have been removed from his post, and the army should have been, you know, uh, b- brought under uh, control to, to the state, to the new state. Uh, look what what Khomeini did in Iran. Aside aside from other details, but what Khomeini did. The whole, the whole army of the Shah, they, he, he put him uh, off totally. Uh, Khomeini uh, did uh, exerted every effort to rebuild his own forces, and that's what happened in Russia. So you cannot, you cannot run a new system with the uh, these leaders who, who they have been uh, running the machinery in Egypt under Mubarak. So you cannot trust them. And keeping them in their places. So unless and until, unless and until you have full control, there is no point in becoming president. Well, where you and this is that that's that answer your question. What went wrong? How come people came to reject Morsi? Is because this so-called deep state they they created crisis after crisis from gasoline line to power to. Uh, bread and butter to various details of day-to-day living, 
they created series of crises, and that's what kind of fueled the popular anger. And even then, mind you, it's not really when you say popular anger, it's not, it's not as some Western observers they label it. They's like, uh, like Feld, Feld Norman uh, in his book about the Arab, the Arab winter, he claimed, he claimed that, uh, yeah, people, uh, people in Egypt, they, they rejected Morsi. That, that was popular vote. This is um, no, it's not. It's not. Yes, the the army, the army, they staged these uh, demonstrations, and uh, Morsi and Muslim Brotherhood, uh, they were kind of soft to, toward them. But in no way, really, this demonstration that took place in 30th of June, 30th of June 2013, that they they represented the, the really the the totality of the uh, Egyptian populace. This is not true. It was all staged by the army and uh, uh, Mubarak uh, strongmen before. And what was the role of uh, international actors and regional powers in the fall of President Morsi? When you have, when you have um, the political understanding, again, as I said, America will not, will not sit idle watching you uh, grabbing power in, in Egypt. Egypt is a major power base for America. So really you are, you are, you are getting into clash with America. And uh, that, that's what the American did. Uh, if you go back to the details uh, back then, these days, and uh, before the before the removal of Morsi, the Sisi uh, was defense minister, and uh, he had intensive communication with Chuck Hagel in uh, in America. And uh, so the American were aware of every everything being being cooked and prepared by the military to remove to remove Morsi. And this this thinking that by Muslim Brotherhood that, you know, we can outsmart them. Sadly, this is this is rubbish. And, you know, this, it, it repeats itself. Uh, that's what we had in Afghanistan. It, to some extent, that's what repeated itself in Syria, where you have this naive uh, you know, they say, you know, you know, we, yeah, we can get weapons and money from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from France, from Britain, and then we under under the so-called excuse of they call it uh, cross cross shared interest that yeah we have an interest against uh, Assad or the Soviet Union, Afghanistan, and the British do or the Americans, so yeah, it's okay, you know, it's win-win. This this naivety, this it really. This naivety doesn't it doesn't withstand the real test of, of events as as it became very clear in, in the case of Egypt. Okay, so I've I've extracted from what you've said uh, a number of uh, reasons why the uh, rebellion failed and why the president uh, the government of President Morsi fell apart within one year. And um, you know it, it ranges as you said it ranges from. Uh, a naivety when it comes to politics and government and how to govern, uh, a failure to remove the trappings of the Mubarak regime uh, and an acceptance that removing just one man would, would somehow uh, would somehow transform the state, as well as a failure, as you describe it, by uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in trying to create a broad spectrum or a broad umbrella uh, under which uh, Muslim groups and Islamic actors could find a home. 
and so their their attitude was was very exceptional rather than very embracing to to other opinions and as you said they lost the salafis as well but isn't that a isn't that a a um, a problem across the board right even if we move beyond uh egypt uh this sort of uh sectarian territorial attitude that many uh muslim groups or as they call them islamist groups they uh they are affected by that you know they have a, a very exclusivist type of attitude and and as a result they find it very difficult to find it within their uh body of thinking to to work with others i mean d- does that in your eyes need to change you are yes yes you are very you are very right here uh you are very right that uh muslim brotherhood let's remember that uh, it was founded back in 1928 um so close to a century now and so all along all along the muslim brotherhood they uh always they had the habit of looking at themselves as being the islamic movement period so uh, no matter what i mean sometimes in some cases like uh, sheikh saeed hawa rahimahullah sheikh saeed hawa uh, a prominent uh, leader of muslim brotherhood in syria he 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 had said this he had said it explicitly in his book that muslim brotherhood is the is, is the, this this take us to a concept in the islamic uh, uh, jurisprudence here of the concept of al jama'a jama'at al muslimin jama'at al muslimin so the muslim brotherhood they always considered themselves uh, that we are the jama'a meaning everyone else is a renegade is a you know is a is a deviate etc etc so yeah they may be somewhat uh, diplomatic they don't they don't say so you know and so brutally or in, in a naked manner uh, but really this is this is what infiltrate their thoughts and this uh, that's, that's why i said this is why they refused they rejected dr abdulmunim you know i mean f- fair enough you have kicked him from the movement before the election you won the election but he's a, he's a devout sincere muslim that you have raised him for the cage he has been one of your leading characters why should you uh, ignore him or sheikh hazim abu smail or the salafi or uh, anybody else has bit tahrir etc etc instead they really uh, this kind of arrogance if you will it reflected this uh, intellectual background they came from um they they have refused instead of instead of appreciating the difficulties and the challenges uh, waiting for them uh, by the military uh, in Egypt instead of welcoming every uh, effort, contrib- contribution from the others no they they kind of had this uh, you know arrogance arrogant attitude uh, and this this was not going to be accepted there was this uh, leading uh, prominent um, intellectual he described that he said he met with mercy twice the, at the, upon invitation the, the, the mercy had invited uh, you know a group of these uh, writers journalists etc um, you know trying to reach uh, reach out to them he said this one he was i think his name dr ala aswani uh he said okay we noticed we noticed something we noticed that we raised questions to him he has no answer 
Then uh, we raise question, he has no answer. Then later on, second meeting, finally we understood that he has no answer because he, Morsi had to go back to the uh, Politburo of Muslim Brotherhood, to the Maktab uh, al-Irshad. So, so he said, look, it's, it's, it, became, it became obvious to us that this Morsi is a, is a facade. He's, he's a, you know, just a front. He's a, just, he's just covered. He's not, he is not the, the one who makes the real decision. So this, this mentality of Muslim Brotherhood, that's what kind of led or contributed to, to their demise from power. They won the animosity of others. I, I know at, uh, at one time they have refused. They have refused to sit down with, with delegations, uh, went to them from other Islamic movements. They refused to sit with them. So they, you know, they had this kind of superiority and, and, and you know, so yeah, that, that cost them, that cost them dearly. That cost them dearly eventually. And you made reference earlier to the role of the Salafis in, uh, in uh, removing uh, Morsi from power and uh, the support base for, for Sisi. Can you expand on what role the Salafi groups played uh, in 2013? Now in Egypt, we cannot, we cannot fail to, uh, to, to include the role by played by the Salafi. The Salafi also played a very negative role in, in Egypt. Uh, then again, we go to, to, to a similar phenomenon here where the Salafi, they never had, they never had a political mind. They never had that before. Uh, and now the Salafi is one title, but really under this title, you have various groups. Uh, some of them uh, had direct support from the Muhabarat of Mubarak before the revolution or the uprising. Uh, so, and the Salafi overall, we know that if, if we were to uh, cross-examine them, examine them closely, uh, the common wisdom among the Salafi is that uh, politics is haram or political party are haram, etc., etc. That, that was their traditional standard viewpoint before the uprising. But then the dynamics of the uprising in, in Egypt, it kind of forced itself on them. Or some, so some of them opted, say, no, well, you know, we have to, ultimately, we have to kind of um, join the crowd. We have to follow the main street. So they did uh, form uh, parties, Hezbun Nur and, and others. And then again, there was this uh, division among themselves. So, but in, in, a, in, a, in brief, the Salafi played a major negative role against the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And as I said earlier, that uh, when Sisi announced the coup d'etat, the leader of Hezbun Nur, Yasser Burhami, was sitting next to him. So adding uh, this so-called legitimacy, if you will, to the coup d'etat led by, by the military. So, and this, this, for the record and for history, if you will, this is, this is a shame and it's a, it's, a, it's a disgrace what the Salafi leaders have done in Egypt. This is really, uh, they, have to, they have to be held responsible for this uh, treason they committed in, in Egypt. Good. Now, let's move on to Syria then. Uh, as I said, it's the most hurtful episode in, in this saga. And uh, President Assad took a different line to that of Ben Ali and Mubarak. Uh, can you please just talk us through how the initial civil society protest turned into a civil conflict? Well, yes, you are right. The Syrian saga is very... Um, very painful to say the least 
uh, then also to understand the reality here on the ground, um, the Syrian regime led by Assad, whether the son Bashar or his father Hafiz, the Syrian regime is a brutal dictator state. It's a brutal police state. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult to really explain at length that the various atrocities and uh, uh, crimes committed by, by this state. Now, uh, so it's, it's, it's not surprising at all, really, that uh, this uh, deeply rooted anger and frustration finally, uh, uh, they found this uh, opportunity, what they thought it was an opportunity to finally re remove this brutal government and, and regime for that matter. Uh, of course, they, uh, looked, they looked forward to what uh, replicate uh, the experience uh, started in Tunisia and then in Egypt. They said, well, okay, if Mubarak was removed, if Ben Ali was removed, so why not we? Why not us here in, in Syria? Uh, they were naive uh, in, uh, in appreciating the political landscape. And uh, many of them uh, fell uh, prey to the promises announced by Hillary Clinton the American Foreign Secretary back then, when she gave several statements saying Assad has to go, Assad has to go, they said, well, okay, so this is a green light, so the days of Assad are numbered. Uh, and even though at the beginning the protests were peaceful, uh, like you said, uh, with the with the admission of Farouk, uh, with the admission of uh, Farouk Shara, Farouk Shara is the vice president of Bashar Assad in an interview with the Lebanese newspaper Al-Akhbar, uh, he, he stated so explicitly. He said for the, for the first six months, uh, our uh, police officers and Mukhabarat, they were watching uh, among the demonstrators whether some of them may be armed, they found none, none of it. So um, this decision to tra transform the uprising in Syria into uh, military, th this was very tragic and big disaster. Uh, it was encouraged by the regime uh, in Damascus, but equally so, it was fully supported by foreign uh, powers, uh, as in Turkey, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and as well as France, Britain. Uh, so this at uh, at the beginning of 2012, as I recall, there was an interview with the New York Times with uh, Rami Makhlouf. Uh, Rami Makhlouf is a uh, cousin of uh, Bashar al-Assad, and he openly, he, he, issued an, uh, he issued a direct threat. He said, he said, we will burn the country. Don't, don't try us. He said, don't try us. We will not give up. We, and he, uh, we will fight to, to the bitter, bitter end. And if, if that meant destroying the country, so be it. So he was, he was clear and explicit in what he stated, and that's what happened. So on the one hand, yes, the regime encouraged this kind of line of uh, transforming the protest uh, into a military. And at the same time, the Gulf states, they also thought they found a way to get rid of uh, Bashar al-Assad, who was a strong ally of Iran. So uh, slowly but surely, the beginning there was a 
we witnessed this uh, increasing influx of weapons, money, and uh, formation of various uh, military groups and revolutionary groups here and there under, under different names, titles, what have you. And you know, so the snowball kind of uh, grew bigger. Uh, and then it, it's still ongoing till now where we are dealing with Idlib. So uh, here we, um, uh, it's no secret now, it's, it's, it's open knowledge that uh, like uh, the big, the famous Jaysh al-Islam in, in Damascus, Jaysh al-Islam was directly financed by Saudi Arabia. Uh, here and there various uh, whatever military or armed groups, uh, they were supported by the Joint Command in Jordan or in Turkey. These facts now are, are, are well known. But so where, yes, so Syria eventually became uh, a proxy war, if you will, between these foreign powers, including, of course, Hezbollah intervened, Iran, and even Russia. So it, it, uh, it grew. Uh, and, and now everybody has a say in Syria except the Syrians themselves. I mean, it's interesting to draw parallels between uh, the Egyptian uprising and the Syrian uprising. Uh, in many ways, the Syrian uprising initially started as a more of a homogenous movement, right? You know, these were civil society actors and uh, they refused to take up arms and they called for the downfall of the regime. But um, that wasn't just located. It wasn't just uh, the downfall of one man. They wanted uh, the regime of repression to end. Uh, but but it, but in a sense, its outcome was uh, even more disastrous, because uh, these uh, very quickly it turned into an asymmetric conflict and, and a civil war. And, and I wonder how much uh, can we blame uh, the uh, leaders of the protesters um, who who uh, who embrace these uh, regional actors and allowed. Uh, to be uh, taken on a journey to ultimately uh, turn this conflict into a, into a military one. Okay, uh, I guess you know the saying that uh, it takes two to tango. So it's not enough. It's not enough for one party to decide. Okay, we will go full blown. So, uh, and you 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 raise a valid point here. What happened? What happened in Egypt? On the one hand, there was no there was no external power. There was no external power. Saudi Arabia or Qatar or, or Kuwait or who knows, Turkey or who knows what, or Sudan, there was no external power who uh, wanted to smuggle weapons inside to Egypt and, and uh, encourage the formation of armed group. There was no foreign party to, to do so. So th that's one thing. The other thing too, uh, Sisi, in what he did in the massacre that he did in Rabia, he kind of drew a sharp line. Said, in other words, you know, he 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 showed his teeth and say, look, don't don't mess with me. I have no problem in in in, in murdering whether hundreds or thousands. It's, it's, it's not an issue to me. So, law intern internally in Egypt, there was no uh, strong uh, demand, if you will, for armed uh, struggle. Of course, there was there were a few handful of individuals. This is but it's not enough. But more important, there was no foreign power who 
uh, was willing to kind of, uh, you know, further encourage this armed struggle in Egypt, uh, which is not the case in Syria. In, in Syria, uh, from outside, there were these foreign powers, as I said, Turkey, Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, etc. Uh, and inside, sadly, there was this naive, um, hot head, um, you know, activists or whatever. And, and there was, in, in this regard, there was a, an important decision made by Assad early on, uh, 2011. He released from the prison in Sudnaya, he released uh, dozens and dozens of hardcore jihadi leaders. And he knew, he fully knew that these guys will go out and they will, uh, you know, uh, they would be more than happy to. Uh, they are uh, trigger happy and they would sh surely go on to practice their, their favorite profession, the jihad. The, 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 he knew them. So that was, uh, that was a big move from his side. Uh, now, in between, in between you always, and uh, it's difficult to go through the details, but uh, like Jabhat al-Nusra, Nusrat al-Sham, uh, there were this uh, inside job, if you will. There was some major, uh, uh, is, is what to say, like the firecracker, if you will. I mean, something nice for media attraction, or uh, so there was a, some major big operation. But then uh, they were carried by the inside apparatus of the of the of the Muhabarat, Syrian Muhabarat. Uh, but so, and uh, in no time, the snowball really grew and everybody jumped on the wagon, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, under the King, King Abdullah back then. So, and they, they figured maybe now is good time, especially in the light of, not confusing, but in the light of uh, various statements coming from the American administration, Obama, Hillary Clinton, that uh, Assad has to go, has to go, has to go. And, you know, um, if you recall, that was a famous statement from the Saudi Foreign Minister Adel Jubeir that uh, Assad has to go, whether peacefully or by war. He repeated this dozens of times. So for a, for a while, for a while, they kind of they got intoxicated with this uh, idea that yeah, Assad days are numbered, and yes, I, okay, they became gung ho and let's go go, and and inside, sure, when they channeled the money, always there were. Uh, uh, few ignorant, uh, whether ignorant or some of them, they may have been sincere, but so the, who who didn't quite understand the uh, political landscape, and they thought that with few weapons here and there we can get rid of uh, Assad. So yes, that uh, and really that um, the events took a tragic turn, not to mention the rise of the Islamic State and so on. I mean, uh, on the case of uh, the Islamic State of ISIS. Uh, it's it's clear that ISIS complicated the conflict and turned international public opinion, at least, against uh, the militia groups um, and uh, the civil society actors behind them. Uh, what did you make of ISIS's involvement when they entered the civil, Syrian civil war? Well, before before ISIS showed up on the scene, really. The uh, the opposition in Syria they had they had managed they back in 2013 uh, by the beginning of 2014 uh, the opposition they had managed to uh, kind of uh, get control over vast uh, territory in in Syria 
despite and even then they had this kind of uh, uh, inner rivalry they had you know whether Jabhat al-Nusra or Ahrar al-Sham and Fayraq al-Sham etc etc a bunch dozens and dozens of various titles and names so they always had this kind of competition here and there on trying to get a bigger portion so when when ISIS came uh, that was another turn uh, another uh, uh, another dramatic turn in the uh, sequence of events at ISIS uh, also to remind to to remember that uh, Islamic initially initially it was titled Islamic State in Iraq it was the initial title was uh, Islamic State in Iraq and this group it's a jihadi group uh, launched in Iraq uh, later on they um, they kind of uh, initially, initially they had, had they held loyalty to Al Qaeda, but under the, uh, the times of Abu Musab Zarqawi, 2006. But later on, they viewed themselves as being no. They 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 thought of themselves as as the true guardian of the or champion of the Islamic cause, and they bypassed Al Qaeda. Uh, so, and it was the Islamic State in Iraq. They were the one. Who had sent Julani to Syria to launch Jabhat al-Nusra? So Jabhat al-Nusra initially was an offshoot from Islamic State in Iraq, and later on, when uh, Baghdadi uh, announced his caliphate in Mosul in June 2014, and now he's Khalif. So he's Khalif. So in his mind, in his vision, everyone else has to fall in line including of course his friend Julani. At this at this point Julani said no. Said no, I'm uh, my loyalty is to Al Qaeda, not to you. So Julani announced his uh, uh, separation from Islamic State and that the two groups became uh, opponents. So it's, uh, now ISIS this is a key issue in their in their thinking. Uh, they consider themselves that they are the Islamic State and the Khalifa is the Khalif, which means everybody else has to join them or else he's a renegade or a rebel or, 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 or so. Uh, so they gave themselves, they gave themselves the legitimacy that we are the state, who are you? And so later on, there were many disputes, many there were many disputes, many uh, friction here and there, where uh, people come and say, "Okay, let's let's seek a third, let's let's uh, let's seek a, a, tribu a tribunal, let's seek a, seek a third party," and they, their answer would be, "No, we are the state. Who are you? And we don't sit with, with you know with renegade groups or rebel. No, no, we are not. We are not equal." We, so, this kind of filled their head with this uh, mo uh, this motion that they they are the state. And worse yet, um, and this takes us to another another level here. Um, the line the line of Salafi uh, thought they had followed was so extreme. They succeeded in gaining the animosity of everyone else. So when I mean it, it's it's painful here to go through the details, but even. On ground, on ground, the uh, Islamic State, most of the fighting was against the other uh, revolutionary group. I mean, so 
that's what I said earlier that in 2013, these various um, armed groups, they had liberated a good chunk of the Syrian territory. Uh, so now uh, I just came, uh, came over and I just started fighting this, uh, this opposition group and, you know, grabbing control of these various uh, areas. Uh, and for that matter, now I don't have I don't have statistics, but uh, kind of I would dare say, uh, globally speaking, generally speaking, uh, I would I would I would go on saying that ten percent ten percent of uh, the casualties who fell in the intra-fighting between these various uh, opposition groups, ten percent of them would have been enough to get rid of Bashar Assad in Damascus. But these people, no, they were too busy. Uh, fighting each other uh, to, the, to the joy of, of Bashar Assad, by, by all means. What I've got so far is both in Egypt and in Syria, there was a uh, there was an extreme naivety uh, on behalf of uh, the actors on the ground. Isn't there a, a, a deeper problem? There? And that problem is that uh, Islamic groups or the Islamic scene um, is uh, a... Uh, a scene that has run out of ideas, and you know, w- when we look at the uh, when we look at the Syrian civil war, for example, uh, many Islamic groups around the world supported the militias and supported uh, their uh, their activities against uh, the regime, even though it was clear from day one that uh, there were regional actors behind uh, these groups, and uh, it was easily it was quickly descending into a proxy conflict so i suppose my question really is uh that uh you know and and this is a question now that's been asked by a number of people who are critical of, of the entire uh scene of of the islamic groups that these islamic groups uh have um have failed multiple times in in multiple ways but also they they reek of naivety and and they misunderstand uh the uh, the serious task of um, of removing these regimes and replacing these regimes with a form of Islamic government. In a way, in a way, um, this question it takes us to the bigger picture, um, which has been debated for decades, for that matter, uh, way before the Arab Spring, which is namely, uh, what is the best way to really bring down these regimes and to uh, to establish an Islamic state. This, this issue has been under discussion for detail, for the decades. And for that matter, if you remember also in Egypt, in from, 19, from 1974 to 1997, we are talking quarter of a century, there were uh, several uh, groups in Egypt, Jama'a al-Islamiyya, al-Jihad group, they, for a, for a good time, they advocated the line, the argument that uh, this government, the Egyptian government, being a Taghut government, that they rule by Kufr, then it is a farida, it's an obligation to bring it down by any means necessary, including fighting. And they did. They did try that. Over, over a quarter century, they did. Uh, launch uh, um, successive campaigns of hit and run, hit and run against uh, the security apparatus in in Egypt. Uh, Finally, they came to a dead end. Finally, in 1997, uh, in jail, when their leaders 
were in jail, they, they kind of, uh, they had this famous uh, revision, they call it murajaat, murajaat is kind of like a review. So they uh, got into lengthy review of their career or their uh, struggle. And they ended up with a conclusion that we have been pursuing the wrong approach. This uh, armed struggle is not correct, it's not valid, it's uh, fruitless, it will get, it will get us nowhere, so etc. etc. They led, they led down a counter argument, if you will. There were a number of documents and books published in this regard, which generated further division uh, among those who accepted it and those who rejected it, etc. etc. There was big discussion, it took a, it took a good while. So now in, in, in Syria, in Syria, really um, there is this political naivety, if you will, political naivety. And again, I, I alluded to this when I said earlier, like, when, like one of them say, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Abdullah, uh, Dr. Hudayfa, Hudayfa Abdullah Azam, the son of the late Abdullah Azam, who was very active in Afghanistan. Hudayfa at one time, he openly said, he said, okay, look, he said, he said, look, the Afghan, the Afghan Mujahideen, they uh, operated the, along the principle of uh, shared interests. He said, look, we know that Americans are not our friend, but uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So since Americans are uh, against a Soviet occupier, so okay, why not? Then we can we can seek support from the American. We could you know uh, use use American aid and help to uh, get over uh, the Soviets. And so he was saying, said, look, this is what happened in Afghanistan, and there is no reason not not to repeat not to repeat it in Syria. So so this kind of uh, uh, naive thinking, that's what led to this uh, tragedies in Syria. Um, and when it, you know, it, it goes without saying that uh, this state, well, Qatar, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey, France, Britain, there is no free lunch here. And this, the governments and, and states, they are not charity organization. They are not, you know, they don't have this heart for, for looking after the orphans or the needy, what have you. This is, this is nonsense, rubbish. So it, it's obvious that uh, there are always strings attached. So this state, when they send you whatever they send you, few uh, whatever fund or weapons or what have you, there there are strings at, attached where you end up serving their their agenda. So uh, and this is this is this is it's a big mess. It is a big mess. Uh, with the result, look now. Of course, now we are talking in in in, in hindsight. We are not after ten years, but certainly. Uh, this was very clear from the beginning. No armed when you because when you engage when you when you engage in a in a confrontation in a struggle against a state which is in this case Syria. Syria, it's the regime of Bashar Assad, or for that matter uh, Mubarak or anybody. This regime not not only has local resources and um, war material and mukhabarat uh, and everything media. And beside the issue of legitimacy, so-called legitimacy, not only he has all of these resources available to him, but then even when, even when uh, assuming the rebel, 
uh, they somehow they managed to uh, get enough strength to cause him headache. Okay, Assad, he could always resort to Iraq, he could resort to Iran, he could resort to Russia, you know. So, so at the end, the basic question is, can I beat Russia? Can I beat Iran? Can I beat America? Yeah, if, 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 if and when I fail to understand that Bashar al-Assad is protected by the American, then I know nothing. I know nothing and there's no point in, in wasting any effort. And this is, this is uh, really sheer ignorance and blindness and the naivety of, uh, oh, Allahu Akbar fi sabilillah, this is, this is, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't cut, you know, it's not enough just for you screaming Allahu Akbar fi sabilillah and uh, this is, this is a very superficial and very childish way of approaching such a serious issue and sadly that's what happened. But you know in the case of the Syrian arena that um, many Islamic groups supported the militias and gave them moral support but I suppose their support also came from a uh, a you know an Islamic scriptural basis uh, they imagined that uh, there's many hadith which talk about Syria as the uh, as the, the the abode of a of a, a future Islamic order and and um, you know there are uh, lots of good signs uh, in the narrations about uh, about Asham and and the people of Asham. Uh, are you saying that you know in the cool light of day uh, these uh, Islamic texts shouldn't uh, uh, shouldn't um, affect uh, our political thinking and our political program as as Muslims. Certainly not. This this alleged uh, text they have no no bearing on the struggle you are engaged in. So uh, and by and there is no way that this text uh, should be misquoted or misused in justifying the connection. Uh, that uh, this has nothing to, to, to justify or to argue that it's okay to get funds from Qatar or Saudi Arabia or the uh, uh, the uh, Operation Command in, in Amman run by America and Britain or the Operation Command run in Turkey run by America and Britain. This is this is very naive and very uh, ignorant. It reflects the blindness uh, where uh, where you end up being um, uh, what to say you are you end up being at a, a chess a chess game you are being played by by outside powers and at the at the cost of what at the cost of destroying the country and the people so this is total uh, very naive and uh, totally wrong. We we now are at a stage of the so-called um, Arab winter that um, we now see that um, many of these states have uh, become ungovernable. So Syria, for example, or Libya, which we haven't spoken about, but uh, uh, is another example of a of a uh, of of a mess really when it comes to the uh, the Arab Spring. Um, when looking at uh, the uh, the last 10 years, um, could you fault someone who who comes to the conclusion that any uh, any thought or any aspiration for uh, sincere Islamic leadership uh, is uh, a distant aspiration? 
um, especially when we see the state of the Muslim world. I mean, apart from Turkey, maybe, and, and a few other countries, you know, even the very basic, uh, you know, parameters of what a, what a state and how a state should function has, has collapsed uh, as a result of uh, the schisms of this last 10 years. This issue, this issue will take us will take us to the kind of the broader, uh, long term, more panoramic panoramic uh, viewpoint. In other words, where we are not we are not only uh, examining the matter of a few years. Really, uh, yes, uh, the Arab Spring has uh, so far has been ten years old, but ten years is nothing when considering the long march of the ummah of the nation so uh, historical historical events and major radical transformation uh, may may very well last uh, much longer than a, a decade or two yes i know at the beginning there was high aspiration and actually the western the western leaders they were very aware of the of the potential involved here. I remember the Russian president at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, he had a statement saying that the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring has a potential of reshaping the global geopolitical stage. And even he gave the analogy of he gave the analogy to the fall of Berlin Wall back in 1989. So yes, uh, and and uh, here and there various uh, personality thinkers, etc., they, they, and they expressed it. Uh, they expressed the hope that uh, maybe, finally, that this Arab Spring would uh, materialize in, in, in producing some fresh uh, third way out for the, for the uh, global civilization in crisis. Uh, there were many who expressed such opinion. Um, so what I'm saying here again, from a larger perspective, um, and in spite of this uh, setback or uh, uh, disappointment that we have seen recently, uh, you may, if you want to call it an Arab winter, but uh, I think when, when viewed against the historical backdrop, um, then no, I think that uh, it will, uh, this Arab Spring will, will be uh, a positive step forward, provided uh, due lessons are extracted from it. Uh, unless and until, unless and until we really extract the due lessons, then then indeed it it is a winter and it is it is a tra tra tragedy. And in this regard, sadly, uh, like in the case of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, the Salafi movement in Egypt. The Salafi movement in Syria, Al Qaeda, the jihadi group, or the the, Khwan, the Brotherhood in, in in Tunisia, by the way, we didn't mention Tunisia. Uh, this is this is uh, uh, it's another chapter that deserves uh, fuller examination. Tunisia is a place where the Arab Spring started. The Nahda people they thought, oh, let's be let's be smarter. Let's let's uh, let's learn the wisdom of what happened in Egypt. Let's not be sacrificed by the opposing forces in Tunisia. So they flipped 180 degree and they went overboard to prove to the secular liberal 
forces in, in Tunisia and the Western governments to prove that the Nahda, we are not extremists, we are very moderate, we are very uh, democratic, we play by the book, we play by the, by the uh, game that you devise, and we will go on as, as far as uh, distancing ourselves from anything Islamic. And, and the 10th, in the 10th conference held by Al Nahda in June 2016, they uh, officially and publicly endorsed the, the notion that we are uh, with the so-called division or separation between the religious side and the political side. We are no longer, no more, we are no longer religious movement. We are strictly political movement and period. In other words, they, we will not accept uh, for the mingling of religion and politics. So, which is, which is, uh, you know, uh, explicitly adopting the secular agenda. And this is a disaster by itself uh, that we will, we will, you know, we will play nice now and uh, we'll present this face that we are, we are liberal, etc., etc. No, this is, this is uh, enough is enough. And uh, uh, things have to be faced squarely. So Al Nahda has failed uh, miserably in, in, in Tunisia, and, and similarly the Muslim Brotherhood they have they have the responsibility and the obligation to review uh, their record. And uh, and uh, I'm not aware I'm not aware so far that this has happened. Uh, sadly, for whatever reasons, the Muslim Brotherhood they keep this arrogance they you know they they don't accept responsibility for what went wrong in egypt and syria for that matter and similarly for the jihadi group the jihadi group also they uh well to some extent jihadi group are, are splintered into several groups so there has been various uh, heated discussion among them but uh, in 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 brief in brief what I'm saying is that the Arab Spring, when taken into historical perspective, then and provided the lessons have been extracted, then yes, it uh, it would be a, a, a positive step forward. Um, like you know, what comes to mind, say, uh, what happened like back in Europe in in 1848, 1848, or even even the French Revolution in 1789. The French Revolution, which uh, occupied Europe for a quarter century and ended up with a military defeat at the hand of Napoleon, and the French Revolution was defeated military, but uh, its intellectual and political uh, platform eventually it uh, became victorious later on, and it led to the reshaping of the political landscape in Europe. So, D Dr. Usman Bakash, uh, your specialism is the subject of pluralism, and that was the subject of your research, uh, and uh, how Islam uh, can bring together uh, different grades of Islamic thought under uh, a single platform. How can we draw upon the Islamic evidences to put right the current sorry, sorry state of the Islamist political groupings and their lack of cooperation and brotherhood that's pretty apparent in the case studies we looked at today. Well, yes, this is this is a central issue, really. It's a central issue, uh, and it is a fact. It is a fact that uh, the mainstream Islamic movement have have seen a multitude of parties and movements 
which reflect various uh, uh, interpretation or ishtihad and so on. So, and as, as uh, the summary of the events of the Arab Spring have clearly proven that really there is a, there is a dire need uh, for the kind of um, coalescing or uh, channeling together all of this effort uh, aimed at the true liberation from Western hegemony and for the aiming at the restoration and resumption of the Islamic way of life in establishing Islamic state. This requires, there, there, there is a key challenge here, namely that uh, we have to um, recognize and realize that uh, different interpretation uh, at, at, a mini, at, a, at a minimum, they, on the one hand, they have the right, they have the right to exist, in other words, okay, while, say, while our group has, has formulated its own platform or decision regarding various issues, so and so, uh, we are not in any position to impose our thinking or our interpretation upon others and vice versa. Uh, so this means, this entails, we uh, recognize the right of the other groups, they, as, as, as much as we did our ishtihad, then surely they have the right to do their own ishtihad. Uh, and the divergence of the, the divergence in ishtihad sh should not be an obstacle in all of us working for the common common good of the deen and the ummah. And this is a challenge really that cannot uh, cannot be postponed. Uh, as I we have discussed, whether in in Egypt or in Syria, uh, in 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 both cases, um, the various Islamic uh, tendencies they kind of they went in a, in a different direction. At the end, uh, the end was very tragic to, to everybody. So uh, this requires this require that uh, the notion that we are the uh, Islamic movement, this needs to be uh, modified. We have to be more willing to accept uh, the others uh, and while while uh, allowing for uh, um, different ishtihad, if you will, but then again, that should, should not be an, an obstacle or a reason to prevent us working together for the common good of the deen and the ummah. Uh, this is a big challenge. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not belittling it. Um, it's a big challenge, as well as the same time, uh, it, it, enough is enough, and everybody needs to come together to really uh, extract the lessons learned from this past decade and that should be helpful in drafting the course for the for the struggle which is still ongoing uh, we have to be honest and, uh, and facing facing the reality we have to uh, highlight what what went wrong and how to be avoided i mean i wonder to what extent uh, that willingness is is present uh, in the current frame of mind of all of the Islamic groups, right, which um, uh, which uh, you've who you've spoken about, and those you haven't spoken about. I mean, you know, is is there really that willingness? If 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 I can make a an observation, and maybe it's just based on anecdotes, but if I can make an observation, I, I would imagine I would say that after 
the Arab Spring, none of the lessons have been learned. And um, if anything, Islamic groups are far more exclusivist and far more exceptionalist in, in their um, attitude towards uh, their groupings and towards uh, each other. And, um, uh, and, and I think that's a, a major obstacle, and I share your concern, that's a major obstacle uh, to and a major barrier to any possible political change if if one is going to uh receive uh you know fellow muslims in as a you know and, and see them as a as an obstacle because of of an ishtihadi point well this 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 is a challenge really and uh it it's uh, as far as far as i know uh yes you are right this lesson lesson has not been derived yet uh, if if you are if you are asking about the whole wide spectrum of the various Islamic movements, and uh, I, I I think this is really of utmost importance now and urgency that should be should be pursued. Now uh, at the same time, uh, the events the recent events in Egypt and Syria and so on have also shown that people, by and large, they. They are very much fed up and uh, frustrated, and to some extent, they have lost hope in many of these Islamic movement. So, unless and until, unless and until this Islamic movement really uh, wake up and face the truth, then they they simply they risk they they risk being sidelined. Uh, the the people will not will not wait for them. You know, if okay, I mean. Uh, you, you want to go you want to go along thinking that you are the hero you are the savior you are the islamic movement okay fine do who cares people will not care for you simply so this is this is uh, they will ditch you and uh, they will seek other other ways dr uthman bakash jazakallah khair for your time today and uh, you've really raised some interesting points and i pray inshallah ta'ala that we can learn some good lessons from this and uh, that some hope can be uh, can be brought to uh, the the problems that are consuming this Muslim Ummah. Inshallah. Next time, Inshallah, we'll speak to Dr. Azam Tamimi on his views on the Arab Spring. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Hi, this is Kristen. And this is Jen from My Mom So Hard. And we're here to talk about By Heart. Do you remember when you were nursing and you were like, I want to give the best thing I can to my baby? 
Well, we've got that for you. It's called By Heart, and it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Tell them my mom so hard sent you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.